Welcome to the show, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. I am so excited to talk to the wonderful Dr. Jenny Goodman, who joins me on the show today. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you very much for having me. You are most welcome. Now, we I know we met at a conference in London when you gave a phenomenal talk on uh, toxins in the environment and how that affects our overall health and well-being. But for those that don't know Jenny, by way of introduction, Jenny Goodman qualified as a doctor in 1982 uh, and for the past 22 years has been specialising in nutritional and environmental medicine, such an important topic, and having finally found a way to practice medicine that is pre preventative, yahoo, um, natural and truly health sustaining. She's author of Staying Alive in Toxic Times, a seasonal guide to lifelong health, which is an absolutely, I have to say it, it is one of the best books I've read and the, the easiest read as well in the context of understanding all of the toxins that we um, are exposed to um, and what we can do about it from a practical perspective. So I just want to really thank you for, <laughs> for taking the time to take what can be sometimes perceived as incredibly complex and and making it very simple for people to understand and uh, I do encourage people to get that book so let's go with the show before we start Jenny I'd love to know what you are passionate about in life right now oh getting the truth out there about illness and health about what really makes us ill and what really makes us healthy which yeah. sounds like it should be a simple thing but actually it's not yeah, and I think that's such an important thing to happen because we are now in the 21st century. And I think sometimes it feels that we are stuck in the 18th or 19th century in the context of, of medicine and the changes that need to be made and, yes. and people fighting against a system that, for me uh, personally, it feels that it's become something that's feeding itself rather than serving um, the people that it was intended for in the first place. So I'm really um, excited to dive into this such important topic. Given we're going to be talking about the truth, um, what for you is optimal brain health in the context of your life's journey? And I know you've been on a phenomenal one. Um, well, optimal, the brain is part of the body, right? Mm -hmm. So optimal brain health has to include optimal physical health. So that means, you know, having all the nutrients you need and being uncontaminated by all the pollutants we're surrounded by, which is, you know, a difficult call. It's very hard to achieve that. And obviously it means, you know, being surrounded by, by love, by good people, by countryside, at least some of the time, um, and being in touch with the spiritual dimension of life as well, of course, um, and being free, being free to think and express your thoughts. Yeah, I, I love you mentioned that because you really touched on all the four quadrants of well-being that I like to talk about, which is which is optimizing your emotional well-being is is the emotions that you'll you'll that off, often run you. Optimize your physical well-being. Optimize your mental well-being, which is how you're thinking and have you got that clarity of thought, and also your spiritual well-being, which I think we often forget about, don't we, in the context of getting the best out of ourselves as a as a human being. Um, and also getting the best out of the engine of life, which is in, is in essence our brain. And also, I think, you know, historically, um, people have approached the brain as a separate entity to the body, as if there's no connection from the neck down. And in fact, it's such it's such an interconnected organ, as you say, it's part of your body. And it runs many aspects of of your of of your bodily functions it's it's really the central processor to many things but mm. we often you know may have grown up in a in a space or time where where we've just looked at the brain and we've not looked at the whole system so so I'd love to know what got you into into functional medicine and mm. and ecological medicine as you know that right. you do now and, and toxins okay yeah. so functional medicine is the american term yeah and i belong to the british society for ecological medicine whom i discovered in the early 1990s uh, um, the late 1990s sorry and i'm very glad that i did because 
I went to medical school uh, back in 1976, do the maths, um, a long time ago. And I was hoping, I realized now quite naively, that I would learn to heal the sick and that I would also learn what were the root causes of illness and therefore how to prevent illness. In fast forward six years on to 1982, I graduated having learned virtually nothing um, about any of those things. Um, and in fact, I had been warned before I went to an interview at medical school, don't say I want to heal the sick, they'll say you're a sissy. And they did. They said, go and be a bloody social worker. That is what they said to me. Wow. However, they offered me a place and I went somewhere else. <laughs> um, so the thing is, I was deeply disillusioned on many levels with orthodox medicine, mostly not only because it was failing, and sometimes making people worse, but because of the questions it wasn't asking. Yeah. And it's in that space now, isn't it? It's continuing. It's in that space, yeah. 40 years on, it hasn't changed. Yeah. One example that I've quoted it before because it sticks in my mind is 1980. I was doing paediatrics. And paediatrics then, and much more so now, largely meant children with cancer, which is a complete tragedy. It was just beginning in the early 80s. And now there are children's hospices, which didn't exist in those days. And I asked the paediatrics professor, I was in Leeds, right? And at Leeds University, we were getting all these children from Carlisle Hospital, who in turn had come from the area around the village of Seascale, where there was a nuclear power plant, now called Sellafield, then called Windscale. When it came out, how many children were getting sick, they changed the name, which didn't really help the kids. And I said to him, sir, sir, are these children suffering from radiation poisoning? I know the diagnosis is leukemia. Is it radiation poisoning? And he looked at me and he said, Miss Goodman, I am a clinician. My job is to treat my patients, not to inquire about causes. And, that, and that's how it is. Wow. And that's why after a few years in general medicine, surgery and A&E, casualty as it was called there, which is the best bit. That's the bit that orthodox medicine does very well indeed in an emergency. They're very good. Um, but I didn't want to work in emergencies forever. And it seemed to me that everyone we saw on the wards, the heart attacks, the cancer, the diabetes, they were all emergencies and could have been helped with intervention 10, 20 years earlier. That wasn't happening. And so I left. And I didn't leave with a clear vision of what to do next. I'd never heard of ecological or functional medicine. I knew something about nutrition, but I didn't know that it could be used as a form of medicine in its own right. Mm. So after some years in the wilderness, I say in the wilderness, but I was teaching, I was lecturing in medical sciences at colleges of alternative medicine. So I was teaching the trainee herbalists, osteopaths, acupuncturists, homeopaths, and so on, because all those people have to know anatomy and physiology. Mm -hmm. So I was lecturing to them and, you know, they kept saying, oh, come on, join us, you know, be a herbalist, be an osteopath, whatever. And my heart was still with the science because the basic mm -hmm. science was all true. But what medicine had failed to teach me was how to apply it. I thought I had given up on conventional medicine, on finding an ethical, genuine way to practice it. So I went off and trained as a psychotherapist, um, got a master's in psychotherapy. And I worked doing that for a while and I loved it. And then I had kids. And when I kind of emerged from that maternal brain fog and wanted to go back to work, I found I didn't want to go back to psychotherapy because it was too much like parenting. <laughs> put your own feelings aside, be there totally for the other person. And luckily at that point, when I was ready to re-emerge into the world of work, I discovered what is now the British Society for Ecological Medicine. Yeah. These are doctors who had all the same questions that I had throughout medical school, but were finding answers in terms of studying people's nutrition, their diet, the health of their gut. And that's about putting the good stuff in that's missing and also about toxins and detoxification. And this is environmental pollution in the earth, the water and the air that gets straight into our bodies and that makes us sick. And it also pushes out the good nutrients, just like having good nutrition helps you resist the toxins in the environment. Mm. So I learned all this from the late 90s onwards. And I just felt like I'd come home. I felt what they're doing here is what I meant by medicine when I decided at the age of eight or nine, I want to be a doctor when I grow up. So that was a tremendous homecoming. And 
the reason the society was originally called British Society for Allergy, Environmental and Nutritional Medicine. And it changed its name to British Society of Ecological Medicine because it's easier to say, but for a deeper reason. So I'll try and explain why we call this holistic form of working with people in a natural way, with diet and supplements and detox, why we call it ecological medicine. It's ecological for two reasons. Number one, it sees the whole human body mind as one joined up ecosystem. I'll give you an example of how that doesn't happen in conventional medicine. You go to your GP and you say, oh, I've got this dreadful rash all over that won't stop itching. I've got pains in my joints and I'm getting out of breath. When they've tried a few drugs on you that don't work, they will then refer you respectively to the dermatologist for the skin, the rheumatologist for the painful joints and the respiratory physician for your lungs. Mm -hmm. And those three people will never sit in a room together to each other and if you put them in a room together and you know bang their heads together as I would love to do they still wouldn't know what to say it is not just about lack of time it's about lack of thinking this is one person's body what's happening in it it's a system yeah what are the triggers in this person's system that's causing malfunctions in these three different systems three different manifestations of what is certainly going to be multifactorial that is many causes but all resulting, you know, so we've compartmentalized the body, so we've compartmentalized medical practice. So ecological medicine is ecological in the sense that it doesn't split you up, it doesn't do that, it looks for causes. What's in you that shouldn't be and what's missing that should be in your body. Mm. Let's get alongside the body as an ally and see what it needs, rather than fighting it with the anti-drug, anti-hypertensive, antibiotic, anti-epileptic, antidepressant. They all begin with anti because they're all fighting your body's natural processes rather than listening to the body and saying, what are all these symptoms trying to tell us? Yeah. Now, the other crucial sense in which ecological medicine is ecological is it sees the human being in the context of the greater ecosystem, which is planet Earth, from which we cannot separate ourselves any more than a baby in the womb can be separate from its mother, right? We breathe the air we drink the water and we eat the food that's grown in the soil. So whatever is in that soil and water and air, good or bad, it's in our bodies. And whatever is missing from the soil is missing from your plate. It's missing from your dinner. So, you know, intensive farming for many decades has depleted the soil of its good nutrients. We're missing them. You know, 60 years ago, a plate of broccoli would have given yeah. you probably as much calcium and magnesium, a portion of broccoli on your plate, as much calcium and magnesium you needed for that day. Now, yeah. it's still good to eat the broccoli, but it's not enough. Because... I find that amazing that it's such a short period of time that we've really uh, had such an... I don't think people really realise that. It's such a detrimental impact mm -hmm. on the quality of the food that we consume you know, that's what, 60, 60 years? Since just 60 years. It's since the end of the first, the Second World War. Yeah. There was, there was some understandable fear about food insecurity and we have to be self sufficient, which we're not actually. It didn't work. But the method they chose was to do away with the organic growing methods that have been used for literally 10,000 years and start using intensive chemical fertilizers, which means you can get three or four crops out of one field in a year rather than one. You stop letting it lie fallow. You stop digging the stubble back into the earth, which was a brilliant thing to do because different crops absorb different minerals from the soil. And if you plow them back, you've still got those minerals in there. Mm -hmm. You no longer have the cows and sheep and pigs yeah. trotting around on the fields, naturally fertilizing the soil. They're, they're separate, being fed soya and other junk. And yeah, cool. fertilizers, exactly, which are not natural to them no. on the soil. So that's just the fertilizers. Then you've also got when you do that and you do monocrop farming, you sort one crop over a vast extent of land rather than the natural way of mixed farming, because yeah. you know, we all know it's good gardeners, a bit of marigold or garlic in with a cabbage stops the bugs. So mixed farms were naturally more sustainable. So instead of that, you've got a monocrop. So any pest that likes that particular crop will you know, explode in numbers and feed on that crop. So then they come along with the pesticides to kill that. 
and they kill so many creatures in the soil, the essential earthworms and insects and bacteria that live in the soil, the fungi who help the roots of the crop plants fix the nutrients from the soil into the plant, they kill all of that. And then they get other bugs coming along, the ones that are resistant, and they explode in number. So they come along with the heavier pesticides. And the pesticides, the herbicides, the fungicides, these are all known collectively, the insecticides as well, as biocides, literally substances that destroy life. And they're made from nerve gases. That's yeah. origin in the chemical yeah. industry. Um, so it is no wonder that when we eat food that has been drenched in that stuff or an animal that's eaten food that was drenched in that stuff, we are eating petrochemical pesticides. Now, where it's relevant to brain health particularly yeah. is that they are what we call lipophilic. They're attracted to fat. They dissolve in fatty tissue. And that means, firstly, they're not water-soluble. You can't just pee them out through the kidneys. No, but they stay in, your, stay in your middle. They get stored. Well, yes, but they also head to the organ to the fat, which is the brain, right? So the pesticides, insecticides, and so on, they're on your food if you're not eating organic. They're on your cat's flea collar, right? There are alternatives to all these things, by the way. If yeah. You, want flea you have to read cat, Jenny's book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you want to keep fleas off your cat or dog, which you do, you simply get some neem powder from a good herbal supplier, N-E-E-M. The neem tree is from India, and the powdered bark and the leaves are incredibly antifungal, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-everything. Yeah. Um, and you rub this powder into your cat or dog. And for a day or two, you have a green pet. But that's interesting. And then the cat or dog will lick the powder off itself, and it acts as a natural herbal wormer as well. And then your cattle dog has no fleas. I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. It works. Well, what the vet will say to you is, oh, the flea collar won't do you any harm. Yeah. It's impregnated with insecticides and it's very hard to kill an insect. They're very strong. They damage our reproductive systems. They damage our endocrine systems, meaning they mess with our hormones and they damage our brains. Um, one patient said to me that, um, they don't have a flea collar, but the vet every six months puts some drops between the cat's shoulder blades. Those drops are insecticide. And my patient said to the vet, how soon can my toddler pet the cat? And he said, oh, after 48 hours. And then she said, and how long will this be keeping fleas off my cat? And he said, oh, three to six months. Now, can you see the illogic in that? Either the insecticide's still there and working or it isn't. And if it's still killing fleas, it's still endangering children. Now, that's just one tiny example of things we take for granted. Um, you know, I mean, people have to have sometimes wasps nest sprayed or ants, you know, coated with ant powder, or they've had an infestation of mice in their house. So for all these reasons, we use these insecticides and people spray weed killer on their garden. Um, yeah. Most of these chemicals, although you can buy them in your local hardware store, shop um most of them have been identified by the world health organization as probable or actual carcinogens right they mess with your dna and they're responsible for cancer okay so if you see the film dark waters mm -hmm. 2018 2019 about chemicals released by um dupont i think it was yeah. and the people in the area getting dreadfully sick with all sorts of cancers that's the tip of the iceberg Erin Brockovich was an earlier film equally based on a very true episode. So, you know, we see the effects of these toxins in the extreme form in situations like that or the Bhopal disaster or Agent Orange in Vietnam. But what we're more concerned with in the West is the drip, drip, drip of tiny amounts of toxicity, um, but tiny, but every day. And there are so many things you can do to actually save yourself from this and protect your brain from these toxins which most of which are fat soluble and they will get into your brain what well, what is it what is it that um people can typically experience from a symptom expression perspective you know from the pesticides that you've mentioned and um well, because I think, I think so many people don't realize that it, at the root cause of some of their potentially skin conditions or their brain yeah. fog could be uh, you know 
Yeah, so almost all of these chemicals um, in the short term can induce headaches and brain fog. Mm -hmm. I mentioned one person in the book whose migraines I actually cured simply by getting her to throw out the air freshener. But it's not it amazing. It's not usually as simple as that to treat migraine headaches. Yeah. But your yeah, headaches and brain fog and not being able to think clearly mm -hmm. are classic symptoms of chemical poisoning. But also, you know, we have our epidemics of neurodevelopmental disorders in children. Right? We have ADHD, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. We have autism, the whole spectrum of autistic mm -hmm. disorder. We have dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia as well. All these kids who are struggling in the classroom, which you know, when I was a kid, it virtually didn't exist. It was very, very rare. Um, and it's not that these kids were just told they were stupid. These kids weren't there. Everybody learned to read and write with very little difficulty. Yeah. So, um, and also mental health issues among children, depression and anxiety. Now, there are many contributory factors. And I would no way sit here and say this is all down to chemical pollution because we know that mental illness and distress is heavily you know, contributed to by social and economic factors, the pressures of social media and advertising on children, the crazy life they live online, by childhood trauma, a little bit by genetics, a lot by nutrition, but also by environmental pollution, which is both chemical and now electromagnetic pollution as well. But, um, I'll start with the hardest bits to tackle and then I'll go on to the easier bits. Yeah, to I'd tackle. love that if you would mind. Okay, so air pollution. There was a report in the Lancet, the Lancet Neurology back in 2014, linking all these childhood neurodevelopmental disorders with chemicals that children are exposed to, like mercury, lead, arsenic, PCBs, toluene, fluoride, chlorpyrifos, which is a particularly nasty insecticide, Tetrachloroethylene and tetrachloroethane, these are dry cleaning chemicals. Don't use a dry cleaners, but if you have to, do it in the summer. And when you bring the clothes back, hang them out on the line, rain or shine, for at least a few days so that those chemicals have outgassed into the atmosphere and they're not in your wardrobe in your bedroom. And it's also in sofas, new sofas, and you know, anything that you buy. Yeah, indoor pollution is important because there's virtually everything you can do about it right the air pollution and the particulate matter particularly in the nitrogen oxides which are increasing fetal damage alzheimer's suicide rates even depression autism uh, traffic fumes basically can increase mental disorders by 39 percent and that's taking wow. into account that's taking into account other factors like poverty because obviously it's the poorer people that live on the busy main roads but even allowing for that fumes in themselves so if you cannot move house to somewhere where there's less traffic which is very difficult for 99 percent of us to do you can at least take the back routes you know usually you don't have to walk along the main roads take the back routes with less traffic and if it's five minutes longer good you've got five minutes more exercise <laughs> but indoor pollution is something we know much less about most of us and we can almost totally reverse it Right, so let's start with what's in your kitchen cupboard under the sink, right? You've got stuff for cleaning the oven and removing stains from the carpet and polishing the furniture and spraying the surfaces, and 99% of it can be replaced by a damp cloth. Yes. Now, there are homemade cleaning things you can buy. Uh, you can make them or you can buy them at a good health food shop, not the kind of chain that only sells its own products, but a proper whole food shop. Um you know, I did try cleaning my windows with vinegar instead. It got them very clean. But you know what? My house smelled like a fish and chip shop. So <laughs> actually, again, for the windows, all you need is, a, is water and a tiny bit of a safe washing up liquid like Ecova. Yeah, a tiny bit, much less than you'd think. You can mm -hmm. wash your windows. You can clean your work surfaces. You don't need antibacterial sprays. You really don't need that stuff. Um, you know, and if you want to put bleach down the toilet, then keep your distance, don't inhale, do it once or twice a week and keep the window open. And that's it, you know. Um, so we don't actually need all these nasty chemicals. And then if you go upstairs to, and look, by the way, in the kitchen cupboard, look closely at those cans before you throw them out, because most of them have the skull and crossbones on. <laughs> people who manufacture these things get very sick. 
Okay, so moving on to upstairs in your bathroom cabinets. Okay, ladies, there's a lot of stuff in there that's not good for you. Right? There's moisturizer and uh, there's makeup and there's deodorant and there's perfume and there's hair dye and there's hair straighteners and there's shampoo. All the stuff that you put on your body, you need to know, goes into your body. The skin, as you mentioned in our conversation before, Ruth, the skin is the largest organ of the body. It's yeah. a huge absorptive surface. Now, it doesn't really absorb water. It takes an awful lot of immersion to get water on, but it does absorb fat-soluble chemicals. And it and talks to your brain as well, I think. You know, it's the third or it's often called the third brain, isn't it? So yeah. because yeah. it's very well connected to your brain and also to obviously other parts of your body as well. Indeed, absolutely. And you really, I mean, what people say is you really shouldn't put anything on your skin that you wouldn't put in your mouth. So here's the perfect moisturizer, organic coconut oil, organic coconut oil. And, you know, you can use essential oils as perfume. You know, if you want to smell beautiful, you can get organic essential oils, tiny glass bottles. And it should be glass, not plastic, because plasticizers are just as toxic as pesticides. They're estrogen mimics implicated in our epidemic of breast cancer. So little glass bottles with essential oils like lavender, um, jasmine, rose, uh, orange flower, all of these, they're wonderful smells and no, they don't last all day. Anything that lasts all day, you should be wary of because it means your natural skin enzymes are not able to biodegrade it. It means it's a petrochemical. Now, yeah. a couple of hundred years ago, perfume was flower essences. That's what the essential oils are. They're just crushed flowers, really. Um, cold pressed, completely naturally extracted. Any perfume you buy in a chemist or a supermarket is petrochemical, as are most medical drugs these days. Um, and that means essentially it's toxic. Um, perfume, um, there's a wonderful group that researched on it, the Environmental Working Group in America. Yeah. I'll and they the in the notes. Yep. They found the average bottle of perfume, quite apart from all the dreadful things that are on the label, like benzene, which is implicated in leukemia and so on, there are 14 unlisted ingredients on average. Wow. There are loopholes in the law that say if it constitutes less than 1% by volume, then you um, you don't have to put it on the label. The same goes with food labeling. You know, take so you're saying that up to 14% of your perfume no i'm saying that they found on average 14 ingredients in the perfume that were not listed on the label but it but if it's if it's less than one percent they don't have to list it so you can oh, have 14 that ingredients that does that have really one percent so 14 yeah. percent of your bottle could be containing unlisted ingredients up it's to true but even the 86 percent that are listed are yeah. pretty nasty so, you know yeah. as, you, as you should you know obviously i don't want people to buy food in plastic packages or tins at all i want people to eat real food like you know an apple or a fish that doesn't come with a label on it but if you are still getting stuff in a package then um take your magnifying glass and read the ingredients whether it's something you're going to put in yourself that's food or drink or something that you're going to put on yourself. Now, there are alternatives. You know, there are safe moisturizers, lip salves, deodorant, shampoos, all these things from a good health food shop. Like I say, not, not a um, high street chain that only sells its own brands. You can get alternatives for virtually all of these. Yeah. And, and I, I would say I would encourage people to go to Jenny's book because she's got loads of guidance on that. But yeah. also you can go to the Think Dirty app, which isn't is very much a US app. So it doesn't mm -hmm. have everything from a UK perspective. But if you're based in the States, you can download the Think Dirty app or the EWG app, Environmental mm -hmm. Working Group app, that will, will provide you a rating um, from the Think Dirty app out of 10 as to how toxic the product is. And then and then it will offer uh, less toxic alternatives. Yeah, that's right. And what you have to be aware of is a bit of a minefield because... Um, there are certain companies that on the whole are very, very good, like Sukin, like Green People, like Ertakram, which is a Danish one. But occasionally these companies get bought out by a big pharmaceutical company. And then products that you were buying last year that were really clean and safe have now got, say, titanium dioxide added to the sun cream, mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. like that. And um, I did a whole series of Instagram posts um, a few months ago about sunscreen. 
and how careful you have to be. But you, yeah, I, I have actually noticed that myself with my daughter when uh, we, we used to buy a product uh, called Aveeno and, and it was for the bath and it was considered quite safe. Mm -hmm. uh, in the context of the uh, of the app, you know, looking at the ratings of the app, I don't, I didn't know as much detail as I do now. But they clearly changed the ingredients uh, and start it started having a detrimental effect. Not just the girls in my uh, NCT group noticed that the those that were using the product noticed mm -hmm. that there were problems with skin um, yeah. dryness and so That's on. That's right. So and so you have to read the ingredients list every time because it may change. Um, but you'll get to know, you know, you'll get to know what these things are. You can look them up. Um, it's not very difficult. And, you know, being careful what you put in yourself and on yourself just becomes a habit in the same way that cleaning your teeth is a habit and no longer feels burdensome. I've so could you, could you just explain, uh, you know, we talk about everything that you put on our skin, what, what impact it has. And I think it's really important for, for women as well, isn't it, in the context of our uh, endocrinology, yeah. it is the impact it has on, on us, what we might notice when we're using products that are not that well, are, are toxic. The problem with all this, Ruth, is that you, the people who get immediate effects, the chemically mm -hmm. sensitive people who say, oh, can't use that, it makes me feel dreadful. Although on the surface they're suffering more, they're the lucky ones because their body gives them clear signals to keep away from that stuff. It's poisonous. Most of us don't get those clear signals and therefore we're more at risk. So it's not something most people notice immediately. Yeah. But what we have to notice collectively at the population level is that we're now being told in the Western world one in two of us will get cancer, mm -hmm. one in three heart disease, and there are something like 3 million people with diabetes, nearly a million with Alzheimer's in the UK. And we have yeah. to stop normalizing this. This is not normal. This is not how it was before the Industrial Revolution. So the effect we're seeing is general and cumulative. You know, I ask mm -hmm. a room full of 50 people, do you know anyone with cancer? And every single hand goes up. Now, if you'd asked that question 100 years ago, maybe three or four hands, if that. Mm -hmm. so, these are the real pandemics. This is what we're seeing. And this has been indisputably linked with the chemicals that we are putting in ourselves and on ourselves. Right. So, and it's it, because we're dealing with a cocktail, you know, you can't do a straight line and say this particular chemical causes this particular disease. When you can occasionally, but mostly we're talking about a cocktail effect. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's synthetic toxic chemicals in your makeup or in your laundry powder. When you can get Ecova laundry powder, which is completely safe, you can get safe stuff from Ecova for the dishwasher. Um, you can use Ecova washing up liquid and you can use about a quarter of the amount that you think you need. You can make all these changes. Um, and if everyone does that, we will see the rates of chronic disease go down. But everyone is exposed to a cocktail. So there's all those personal things. There's the insecticides and the fungicides and so on in your food if you're not eating organic. And remember, yeah. organic organic isn't some weird special kind of food. Organic is what our great-great-grandparents ate and what everyone before them for a million generations ate. It's simply food that hasn't been sprayed with pesticides or an animal that hasn't been dosed on antibiotics because it's living in such cruel conditions. Its immune system gets stressed and therefore it gets mm -hmm. infections and so on in a cascade and animals that haven't been fed on artificial hormones. Right? So, you know, eating organic. Yeah. I mean, eating organic is the first and simplest thing to do. It's so, quite difficult, though, isn't it, in the context of cost for some well, people? I want to say something about that. Um, it depends how much you eat. So somebody who's yeah. eating chicken, say, five times a week, and they're eating battery chicken that's cruelly farmed and incredibly bad for you, if they change to eating free-range organic chicken, no, they can't eat, eat it five times a week, but they can eat it once or twice a week, which is all we need. Yeah. Yeah? So make sure your meat is organic and eat a bit less of it, and then it comes to the same price or less. Secondly, it's a campaigning issue. Write to your MP and ask, why is the government subsidising the huge agri-chemical farm businesses that are carpeting our countryside with these identical pesticide drenched um, crops rather than subsidizing the small human scale organic mixed farms, the family farms, which make everyone so much healthier. Yeah. And thirdly, about organic being more expensive, 
it is a question about priorities because in the 1950s and 60s, we spent 33% of our total income on food. That has now gone down to about 8% because we've got wow, a big shift. Yeah, we've got our priorities wrong. I mean, I've, I literally have a patient that sat in the consulting room with me and said, look, I cannot afford all this organic food. Oh, by the way, can I reschedule our next consultation because we're going to Barbados for a month? Do you hear that? Do you hear that people have the money to go to Barbados? Well, they'll get lots of vitamin D. That'll be very good in the sunshine. But they haven't got the money to eat organic. So it's totally about prioritizing. Yeah. I want to go back to indoor pollution. It's not just personal care products that we need to change and can change. And it's not just the things under the sink. It is the soft furnishings. And again, there are solutions to this. So let's start with what you're sleeping on. Your mattresses, your duvets your duvet covers and your pillows. Conventional mattresses and pillows are synthetic fabric and they are impregnated with all sorts of chemicals. They're chemical in themselves and they're impregnated because artificial fabrics are not naturally fire resistant in the way that wool and cotton and natural mm -hmm. materials are. They by law have to add to them fire retardants, flame retardants, and these are polybrominated biphenyls, PBBs, uh, which have replaced the polychlorinated biphenyls. And this is what happens. They discover something's toxic. And after years and years of campaigning, they say, OK, we've withdrawn it. We've replaced it with something safer. 20 years on, that safer thing turns out not to be safer at all, to be just as carcinogenic. You know, I had one person that bought a new mattress in January and by March was in hospital with kidney failure. Oh, my goodness. Her partner sleeping on the same mattress was absolutely fine because we're all genetically different. Yeah. The capacity of our liver enzymes to detox these things is immensely different. And the people who get most sick, most obviously, first of all, whom I call the canary people, are the people who happen to be biochemically made in such a way that they really can't process these toxins at all. And some people can. Um, nobody can, ultimately. But some of us can up to a point. Mm -hmm. so mattresses, I would strongly recommend, whatever it costs, getting an organic mattress. And again, I recommend in the, in the book where you can get them. There's the Natural Mat uh, Company and there's Abaca. Uh, and increasingly, it's possible to buy organic mattresses. Green Fibers in Totnes do them as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the same with a pillow. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the same with pillows. Get an organic pillow duvets pillowcases and that's the most important thing and if that's all you do you've done a lot because you spend eight hours of your 24 hours in bed and you don't want to be lying on something that's giving out toxic fumes again some people will get an immediate reaction like the patient i mentioned and some people will get nothing at all but 10 years later they've got cancer and you can't yeah. see the explanation because it's the mattress and the non-organic food and the water it's a whole host of things yeah. that all stack, like always, you say, the cocktail effect. It's always a cocktail effect. Now, other furnishings like sofas and carpets and um, cushions and curtains, those sorts of things, much harder to get them organic, but quite easy to get them secondhand. Mm -hmm. You get them secondhand, they have already in their first six months outgassed most of the toxic mm -hmm. chemicals which are in them. And also, if you're buying those soft furnishings, do it in the spring, do it in April. So you've got six months to come where you can have the windows open and any substances that are outgassing from that sofa or that carpet can go out of the window. And um, I'd love to talk about the indoor stuff in the context of painting and stuff, too, because that's such yeah, a toxin. It's now quite easy to get safe paints. Uh -huh. There are three companies that I know of. And I'm sure there are more now who do paints that are not full of toxic chemicals. And I've tried them out recently. You can actually have the bedroom decorated. And even without the windows open, it doesn't smell, which means there's no nasties in there. So my favorite one is Graffenstone, G-R-A-P-H-E-N-S-T-O-N-E, Graffenstone. Mm -hmm. There's also Ecos, E-C-O-S, and Auro, A-U-R-O. They all do non-toxic paints. And yes, it's more expensive, and I wish it wasn't. But what price do you put on your health? You know, getting, God forbid, cancer is also expensive because you become yeah. unable to work. Um, and prevention is so much better than cure. 
I, th I think that's such an important point. It's so difficult. You know, we put a price on ourselves, don't we? And as you mentioned, the lady wanted to go to Barbados because it was important for her, probably for her spiritual health, but actually yeah. her physical health yeah. may have been rock bottom. And we put yeah. different weightings on, on different parts of our health, don't we? And maybe not even value yeah. um, the importance of focusing on the toxic load that we're experiencing and the cocktail effect that is happening inside our bodies as a, as a result of all of these factors. Yeah. And it's hard to hear this information. None yeah. of us want to know it. It's much easier to block it out and, you know, pretend we can't see it. But ultimately, it is empowering to share this information. It's empowering for people because once you know, you can do something about it. Yeah. Rather than, you know, passively, you know, inhaling and eating and drinking and putting on yourself all this toxic stuff and 20 years later you're diagnosed with something and you go to the people in the white coats and you fatalistically helplessly throw yourself on their mercy and say this has happened make me better no rewind 20 years you can prevent it now yeah. and I think that's what we need to be doing we haven't talked enough about water no I'd love to dive into that because I know we talked about air pollutants and we've only really scratched the surface but I, I love to talk about water too because it's such an important topic and I know you talked about it at the, at the conference we went to. Okay I talked at so many conferences this summer you're going to have to remind me was it health optimization? It, was, it was the College of Medicine Integrated oh, Health in London. The um, Integrative and Personalised Medicine yeah, Congress. Exactly. You have to have your brain in good shape to be able to even say that. <laughs> Integrative and Personalised Medicine Congress. Yeah. So um, I gave a talk called It's Environ-Mental. Um, and that was obviously more depth than this can be, but that's essentially what we're talking about. Um, if you want to be really sure you're doing everything you can, I would say three things. One, attend to your bedding. Two, eat organic and free range if you're eating animals, you know, so... Yeah. Um, that means free-range chicken, pork, beef, lamb, and so on. Um, and if you can't get wild salmon, you get organically farmed, you know, or you get fish that are smaller, like mackerel and sardines, so they haven't absorbed too much of the pollution from the ocean. You can do all that. But then there's what's coming out of your tap. Yeah. Now, the water companies do a good job of making sure there's no bacterial contamination in there. So you don't have to boil your water in this country. From the microbiological point of view, you're safe to drink it. But they don't really have procedures for taking out pesticides and fertilizers, which have inevitably run off the land from non-organic farms and got into the water table. They don't really have procedures for taking out the hormones. Now, why should there be hormones in the water table? Well, all the women on the pill, and all the women on HRT, hormone replacement therapy, are peeing out those hormones in their urine and they find their way into the, the system, sewage system and the water table and the reservoirs and eventually into the tap water because I don't believe there's any system for taking the hormones out. And it's not just hormones, it's animals. Now, when it's we... animal hormones that end well, up... When we were in the EU, it was illegal to put hormones into animals to inject them artificially. Now we're not in the EU and we're actually importing more and more of our meat from America, where the regulation is very lax and it is perfectly legal to inject these synthetic hormones. And it makes animals grow fatter and faster. And it's strongly linked with cancers of the reproductive system so that the breast, the ovary, the endometrium, which is the lining of the womb and the testis and the prostate in men. Right. So it's really important that your meat be free range and organic. But coming back to the water, anything that we pee out, we being humans or animals, gets into the water. And that includes antibiotics. Yeah. If your if your farm animals are not anti are not organic, then they can be dosed with antibiotics. And they do this. Now, they say I've had debates with them when I spoke at Groundswell, the agricultural regenerative agriculture festival last year. And there is a debate and farmers are defending the antibiotics and it's just a tiny dose and it doesn't get into the meat. I, I'm simply not convinced because it may be a tiny dose, you know, at breakfast, but then it's another tiny dose at lunch and another at dinner and another year after year. And antibiotic resistance is being created by the overuse of antibiotics 
not just your GP doling them out like Smarties, and but they're in the water. And so the simple answer is invest in a water filter. Yeah. Ideally, a plumbed in water filter. If yeah. You can, um, if you can get a whole house water filter, it's much better than the jug on the counter because the jug on the counter is great. It means you'll be drinking water that's had a lot of the junk filtered out. But if it's sitting in a plastic jug in the sunshine, then Not you'll get right. plastic right. chemicals. You can get glass jugs. But also that means you'll be drinking clean water. But will you be boiling your rice or pasta in clean water? Yeah. Probably not. You'll probably get that just from the tap. Mm. Um, and actually, you know, the rice or the pasta is absorbing that water. Um, whereas if you have it plumbed in, all your cooking, even your rinsing of vegetables, although you don't want to rinse, rinse too much earth off them if they're organic. No, you want to be eating, eating the dirt to feed your, to feed, to feed your uh, bugs in your gut, don't you? Yeah, you want the good bugs for the microbiome, absolutely. And the, the huge excessive amount of hygiene we've seen recently is just increasing allergies in children. Um, yeah, so you want a plumbed in water filter for the whole house, ideally. So you're also not bathing in not only the heavy metals that they don't take out, in addition to what I've mentioned. Yeah. Chlorine that they put in to kill the bugs and then don't take out again. So, you know, everyone's tap water smells a bit like a swimming pool. If you it does, it. yeah, I agree. And in certain parts of the country, they are putting artificial fluoride into the water. Yeah, now, I think it's in Birmingham, isn't it? They've been doing a in trial. In Birmingham, West Midlands, since 1964. Wow. Now, I see children from all over the UK and Europe, and I see a disproportionate number from Birmingham and the West Midlands when you measure the fluoride in their urine, it's sky high mm -hmm. and it's messed with their brain, their bone, their thyroid, kidneys. You know, it's dangerous stuff, fluoride. It's known to be toxic. And 40 years ago, they were, it's a, it's a waste product, I should explain. It's a waste product, a toxic byproduct of the phosphate fertilizer industry. And they have a waste disposal problem. And 40 years ago, they were forbidden to release it from factory chimneys because it was toxic. And now somehow they've persuaded the American Dental Association and now the British Dental Association to back up putting it in the water, supposedly to help children's teeth. No, and I'm really, really confused about this because there's because of the evidence. Yeah. surrounding the benefit of putting it in versus the evidence surrounding the um the impact of putting it in um a book called um now it's a book about fluoride by dr paul connett see if i can grab it off the shelf um okay if you look up dr paul connett it's a book that pulls all the all the references together about fluoride um, there's fluoride alert um in the uk Basically, it does change the teeth and the bones. It certainly makes them harder and more dense and may have a very temporary effect on reducing tooth decay. But if you have too much of it, you get dental fluorosis. Yeah. And in that chapter five of my book, um, I give the references that show that although fluoride makes the bones more dense, it also makes them more liable to fracture more yeah. liable to fracture so it's partly what's behind our epidemic of osteoporosis it changes the architecture of the bone makes it harder but more brittle and you know for millions of years we managed to keep our bones healthy into old age and our teeth without adding fluoride to the water now if you compare the rate of dental decay declining and it has been declining since the 60s in every country in europe including britain and you compare it with all the states of America that have fluoride in the water, you find it's exactly the same. Tooth decay is declining because we visit the dentist more often. We know about brushing our teeth. We know about not going to bed sucking something sweet, which kids used to do. So dental decay is declining, but it's not declining because of fluoride because it's exactly it's the same. Because of education. Yeah, and it's the same whether you add fluoride to the water or not. Now, yeah. so I don't think it's good for children's teeth at all. But even if it were, you have to weigh that against damage to the brain. The and damage organs, to the rest of your organs as the well. Thyroid, the kidneys, all yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, and I, and I'd, I'd love to, so I know, I, I know we're kind of running out of time, but I'd love to talk about, you know, the power of the people because you've yes. been so kind to express, you know, what we, what we need to look out for, the impact it can have. Um, and what what steps we can take but you know I feel 
I feel there's a big issue here that people are not aware of the things that are harming them. And, and, and by educating people, which hopefully this podcast um, will, will do for so many, is we are empowering people to make better decisions. But and I wonder, also, I wonder, I mean, we've all got the power to choose, haven't we? So people can choose to listen to what you've said or not. And that's ultimately we have to accept the consequences, which is part of life. But I just wonder how can people, how can we, the people, mm-hmm. um, bring this to attention and and instigate changes that are so necessary at a government level, at an industry yeah. level, at uh, informing people yeah. what they're consuming um, level because that because it the information that we're given. Uh, mm. you know in the supermarkets yeah. by government um, it is can be so misleading for people and people have to trust someone don't they that yeah. they are informing them with the right information yeah. that is scientifically underpinned and so so many cases historically you know the sugar the cases around sugar smoking you know historically was perceived to be okay in the past uh, and we have the, you know, the situations around get rid of fat in your diet because it's going to cause heart disease. Oh, you know, so much no. misinformation. Get rid of the sugar, not the fat. Yeah, yes, exactly. That has led to such catastrophic yeah. consequences on a I population mean, level because people have, have listened to misinformed scientists. I, I think you need to check who's paying the scientists you really yeah. do because more and more of them are being bought by the big corporations like big food big ag big tech big pharma which have huge profits to make including the chemical industry you know and and if somebody says this stuff is safe it's not toxic i'm afraid we have to look at who's paying them and and also look up the information that is there in the peer reviewed literature about the dangers of all these things see all of this everything i've been saying is in the peer-reviewed scientific medical literature, but it never trickles down to the level of the GP or the hospital consultant in the clinic. Um, And I'm not quite sure why that is, but I would say that we have huge power as consumers. I mean, we haven't talked about toxic pesticides and and other chemicals in clothes. That's a whole other issue that I'll be speaking about on on Sunday at Sustainable Fashion Week in Bristol. But um, in the preparation for that, I had a great conversation with uh, William Lana, who runs Green Fibers in Totnes. And at the front of his little brochure, which is all about safe fabrics, clean fabrics, he says, what we buy will be produced and what we don't won't. You know, if we stop buying the toxic hair dye as women and let our hair go grey or white, as it does when we get older, if we stop buying all these nasty chemical um, cosmetics and perfumes, knowing that there are plenty of safe alternatives, which I list in the book, uh, and we start buying the healthy organic food, the market will shift. You know, yeah. it will shift. Um, if we it's buy the same way as the straws shifted, isn't it? We look at plastic straws, suddenly people became very conscious. Obviously, there was a lot of work in the background around that, but now yeah. people are much more focused on paper-based straws I know that's a very fairly weak comparison but it felt like that the change happened very quickly because it suddenly became unacceptable for anybody to be purchasing plastic straws because of the the harm exactly and those that's a very good example of where consumer power makes a difference I mean look boycotting South African fruit helped bring down apartheid you know, these boycotts really do make a difference, you know. Um, so we, we can do that. We can find out what's safe and what isn't, buy the safe stuff and boycott the harmful stuff. Um, and of course, you know, good nutrition is at the root of all this. And in my book, I talk about what vitamins and minerals we need, what, what good fats we need as well, what bad fats to avoid, how to cut out the sugar, eat your greens, really basic stuff, how to avoid artificial additives because they're not really food. No, and and they, they're pro-inflammatory as well. And they, they, they actually feed the, the bad bugs in your gut, so it's not very helpful in any shape or form. You know, we're at the turn of the season now. It's kind of the end of summer, beginning of autumn. So I would say the first four chapters of my book are winter, spring, summer and autumn and how to live and eat differently at different times of the year. And of course, if you're eating right and your nutrient levels are tip top, you are less affected by the pollution as well. 
so you know it's good stuff in bad stuff out really yeah no and and, and i really um applaud you for for pr producing this because you know and i just want to make play may mention to it it's obviously um our wonderful new king charles um the third is a big yeah. advocate of everything you've talked about in terms of ecological um farming ecological medicine and, and the focus that we need to take on an integrated mm. um or functional or ecological perspective where we look at what we're doing and i'm excited that that we are at a turning point hopefully where people you know will start waking up to the need that change has to happen yeah. because we um are collectively because of what we buy keeps being produced are making the population sick yeah and we have the power to learn and inform ourselves you know and periodically we'll want to sort of block it all out and put our head in the sand but that's understandable but then we have to get our head out of the sand and say you know what we can make a difference we really can we really can to our own help and to everyone else's yeah Je jenny what what one piece of advice would you give to anybody who um given this show is all about brain health and unchaining your pain and we can have pain in so many different mm -hmm. parts of our body well one piece of advice would we give to anyone who feels that they are struggling as a result of toxic load on mm -hmm. their system okay um the answer to that is really in chapter seven of the book tox detox there are seven different ways you can detoxify and get these chemicals out of your system but i would also say don't be overwhelmed and don't feel you have to make all these changes at once. Yeah. Nobody can, but you can make all of them over a year or two. All right. So start simple. Start by buying organic. And if you're a carnivore, eating a bit less. Um, get a water filter if you possibly can. And make sure your mattress and your pillow and your bedding is as organic as possible. And keep the windows open. So, you know, if you did just buy a new sofa before you read my book, keep the windows open yeah. and um, let, let the smelly toxins out. And one tip, if you're talking to health professionals, because they get very cynical when you say the word toxins, if you say it in Greek, they listen. And the Greek is xenobiotics. It begins with <laughs> X, X-E-N-O, because xeno is the Greek for alien or foreign. Xenobiotics are substances that are alien to our human biochemistry. And if you say, oh, I'm dealing with xenobiotics, you get much more respect than if you say I'm dealing with poisons or toxins. So that, that's, <laughs> a tip, that's a tip for arguing with your doctor. <laughs> I love that. And obviously you can tell them to go and purchase Jenny's book and read all of the, or direct them to the wonderful um, references that Jenny has in there. And with regards to all of the toxins or the xenobiotics that um, we are exposed to and what we can do about it. Jenny, it has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so, so much for sharing your wisdom on, the, on this topic. And um, before we go, how can people get hold of you to find out more about what you do? Right. I have, in order to write more books like this, I have retired <laughs> from clinical practice. So I'm not. Oh. But, but, but the good news is, I'm not the only one doing ecological medicine. I have a vast number of excellent colleagues. And if people want to see a practitioner, they can just drop me an email and I will send them my list of practitioners that I can confidently recommend. If they send me just half a dozen lines maximum about their condition, I can say, and this is the doctor or the nutritionist or naturopath or herbalist who will be best for you. And most of them you can find through the British Society for Ecological Medicine. Yeah, which I've joined, by the way. Thank you for the, for the council because it's such a fantastic uh, yes. source of information. And you will meet kindred spirits there. And on page 333 of the book, there's a list of resources. It's just lucky that it's a memorable number. Page 333 has a list of organisations through whom you can find a practitioner because many nutritional therapists and naturopaths and herbalists know all this stuff as well. It's not just those of us doctors who studied ecological medicine. And we're yeah. working more and more closely together with them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, thank you so much. Do make sure you reach out to Jenny. Do connect with her on our website, which is drjennygoodman.com. Or you can find her on Instagram, dr yeah. underscore Jenny underscore 
underscore Goodman, where she posts loads of fantastic information about how you can help yourself um, in uh, and stay alive in toxic times. Jenny, thank you so, so much. I look forward to uh, continuing our connection, our chat and, and working with you and, and helping you share the message and spread the message and help people get well. It's been a pleasure.